Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, Will Robinson had sent out a radio signal, unaware that far out in the void of space, a strange missile-like object was even now homing in on it. You should know better than have the radio on during a storm, Will. But I thought it was getting something. Well, you can try again in the morning. It isn't safe to keep it open with a storm of this severity. Not safe? Why? What could happen? Well, when it's tuned this high, you could very easily bring one of those lightning bolts crashing down on us. Abnormally high wavelengths, coupled with the electrical storm, produce a homing signal. Homing signal? And anything out there could home in on us? Anything at all? Well, that's hardly likely. With the exception of those lightning bolts, I don't think there's anything out there within light years of us. How do you know what's out there? A deadly runaway missile? Some sort of alien monstrosity just waiting to swoop down on us? Well, in that case, Dr. Smith, uh, might I suggest that you man your post throughout the night? Because I'm going to bed. Come on, champ. There! There! You wouldn't believe me, but there is! It's a missile, and it's headed straight for us. Welcome back, folks, for Episode 6 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the sixth episode of Lost in Space titled, Welcome, Stranger. And what do you know? We finally get a guest star. Well, I guess if you don't count the Cyclops. How did you like this one? Uh, Well, he was uh, definitely a surprise with that cowboy hat. I mean, I thought it was a little bit... uh... Uh, they they were taking the cowboy theme a little too far, but uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Call him a space cowboy, pioneer to the stars, which is exactly how they describe Star Trek, if you recall, a pioneer wagon train to the stars. Yeah. Well, it's worth pointing out that this is the first episode that does not use extensive footage from the unaired pilot, No Place to Hide. And it's also the first episode that sets up the basic template for almost all the rest of the episodes of the first season. Namely, where the galactic castaways are more or less tied to the Jupiter 2 campsite, and a guest star, either as a human or an alien, comes to them, and then the drama ensues from there. You might remember we made some comment earlier about how some people said, you know, people mistakenly compare Lost in Space to Star Trek when they should be comparing it more to Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and, and this is an example of what that is all about. I mean, they're stuck on an island, 
and somebody's going to wash ashore or they're going to have, you know, a broadcast on the radio or some some sort of external force is going to change their routine and that's what the episode's going to be about. That's uh, true. Yeah. It's 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 like Gilligan's Island in space, isn't it? Yep. And Gilligan's always going to break the radio, or in this case, Dr. Smith's going to break the radio, or the coconut's going to fall right on top of the, the special formula. Who knows? But Yeah, it's, it's true. Well, okay. A few production notes before we begin with the story. The writer of this script is Peter Packer. Now, this is his second effort. He was the scriptwriter for the Derelict episode. Tony Wilson is the script editor. Packer is a very interesting guy. Of course, you'll remember he's the most prolific writer for Lost in Space with 25 credits. And the British-born Packer loved the Western genre, so he was a natural to write this episode that featured the wayward Texas astronaut Jimmy Hapgood dropping in unexpectedly on the Robinsons. Packer's cowboy aphorisms that he penned for Jimmy Hapgood's dialogue were some of the most memorable lines in the show, for once upstaging Dr. Smith's lines. Director for this episode, a guy named Alvin Ganser. Um, The film dates were from the 8th through the 17th of September, 1965. That's eight and a half days. Two and a half days over the allotted six-day filming schedule. Uh-oh. Oh, somebody was, uh, some director was found in the trunk of his car after this, <laughs> I bet. Well, maybe not quite that bad, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it didn't win him any favors with Irwin. Ganser was 54 years old. He had impressive TV credits, including four episodes of The Twilight Zone. Uh, he directed the second episode of The Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle. His... Only effort for Lost in Space, however, would be this episode, and I think we all know why. The episode aired on October 20th, 1965, and there was no summer repeat. All the regular characters are featured, and our guest star is the 32-year-old Warren Oates, who played Jimmy Hapgood. Now, Oates was in high demand during this time. Practically every Western on TV, like Gunsmoke, The Rifleman, Wagon Train, Bonanza, they all had guest appearances by Warren Oates. Sci-fi fans will probably best remember him from a famous episode of The Outer Limits titled The Mutant, where he played an astronaut who came back to Earth as a bug-eyed freak. Yeah, a wide-eyed astronaut. Super wide eyes. One of the best trading cards to Outer Limits, if you happen to have that set. It's got a, a beautiful shot of him with those giant bug eyes. And it's, uh, I, I think, probably one of the best cards in that set. So Act 1 opens with the standard narrator recap from last week's teaser. Not long after Will sent out a radio signal during an electrical storm, John comes up to the upper deck and cautions Will to stop transmitting because it could be very dangerous. Who knows what sort of lightning bolts will be cast down upon the Jupiter 2. And of course, this is very distressing to Smith as he imagines all kinds of disasters. And even though John is dismissive at first, the radar does show that there's a missile heading straight for them. There, there, I told you, see, right there. <laughs> Your homo beacon attracted this right here like I told you it would. Homing beacon, sir. <laughs> Did you notice that every time they cut away to that radar uh, screen, the spaceship always backs back up to like three bars out? You know, look, it's coming in, coming in fast. And then they do some 
you know, monkey business where it shows the, the group and then it cuts back to the radar screen again. And now the, the spaceship has gone back, you know, to three bars out and is coming in again. <laughs> yes. Bat- Batman used to do that all the time, you know, when Robin was on the uh, gangplank about to be eaten by alligators. You know, it's just about to drop them. And then, you know, tune in next week. And, and then it cuts back and the gangplank's been extended again. And <laughs> Robin's in the middle. <laughs> We're watching it retreating slowly. Yes, we've got to keep everyone in suspense as long as possible. So uh, anyway, we cut next to the morning where the whole group is clustered around that very radar scope watching as that missile homes in on our castaways. And I Again, I, three bars out. It goes back to three bars out three bars all out. night long. And it's there it is again. Except it's getting closer. Yeah, And I love Dr. Smith, who's already thinking that, uh, oh, he's thinking the worst. Who knows what sort of things are homing in on us. Could be space devils spitting flame and cosmic dust. Space devils? I've never heard of space devils. Haven't you, my dear? Haven't you, my dear? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's one right there. A deadly intruder sweeping on us at the speed of light, spitting flame and cosmic dust, breathing up our precious oxygen, spreading lethal viruses. Viruses. Which is exactly, that's exactly what it ends up doing, is spreading lethal viruses but that comes later it does so smith is on a roll now he's he's predicted that you know something was going to come and no one believed him and sure enough it was and nobody said hey you were right and he predicted the viruses and when that happens no one's going to say hey you were right about that and it's worth noting that in the previous episode smith saved everybody's life and nobody thanked him for it remember he he's the one who sent the robot his major bodyguard out to warn the Robinsons when he called them on the radar and they didn't believe him. So he sacrificed the robot who that may never have come back for all he knew and left him to die in that spaceship all alone. When they finally figured out he was telling the truth and all came and, you know, they, they, they wouldn't have had time to set up that shelter if they had waited until they saw the solar uh, flare approaching at that speed. So they would have all been toast, literally toast. And nobody ever said thank you. <laughs> well, I guess he's the classic uh, boy who cried wolf because no one's giving him any credit for anything, and they they distrust everything he says. We're definitely getting the frightened Dr. Smith version here. So as they watch, the target finally lands, and they say, oh, it lands. Well, we better go check it out. So the men, and I mean only the men, including Will and the robot, must go out and investigate. And of course, Smith at first doesn't seem all that thrilled about going, but they say, oh, you're coming along with us. And uh, uh, the girls are behind at the ship, and the next we see them walking through that familiar jungle uh, setting with the rock wall behind them. And so... Smith is Smith is practically <laughs> clutching Will. John, must be just ahead. Let's take a look. All right. Will, you stay back here. Halt. Halt. Don't be afraid, Will. Just uh, keep calm. I am. You see, these alien creatures may be very terrifying. You mustn't panic, you know. And don't tremble. I'm not. You are. Look at the robot. Object approaching. Can't be. Howdy! As they get closer and closer. Don't be afraid. Just stay calm. You see, the alien creatures, they can be very terrifying. You must keep calm and don't tremble. <laughs> I'm not. You are, Dr. Smith. No. 
And of course, all that lush vegetation, you know, where was this during the solar flare? Did it grow mm. back that fast? It's Let's not think about this. Well, it's a strange planet, as we said, but anyway. Of course, it's a better, uh, it, it's a nice backdrop. I That's a, of all the backdrops that they have on this rock uh, between the, the ice cubes on the, the ice sea and the rocks during the desert scene. At least this has got, you know, some cool caves and lagoons and other things like that. It's a pretty cool setup. Oh, it is. And they get to a, a certain point and the, 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 you hear the beeping in the background and they're, they're we, we must be right on it. And they look up and I love this. Don looks up and he goes, it can't be. And, and the camera's pointing down on them and he says, it is. And he looks up and there's Hapgood. There's our astronaut, uh, the cowboy astronaut. What a grand entrance that is. And he's got a corn cob pipe in his mouth as well as a cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah. Sweat stained, no less. Yeah, I bet he's got everything but twirling that uh, lasso and spitting tobacco. You know, it's it's very cliche, but uh, pretty cool. But he also looks like a giant because you have no way of gauging his size except the angle of the shot. And they're basically giving him the Cyclops treatment. You know, they're they're down below and he's way up on the rock. And if you put a boulder on his head, you know, he would have been just like the Cyclops. But turns out he's regular size and he jumps down right in the midst of these guys with all their laser pistols drawn. And none of them squeezes off a shot, which I thought was pretty daring on his part. And then one of them actually, you know, I think the robot makes a, uh, a threatening gesture. Oh, you got to be faster than that. You know, I mean, to him, it's all a game. He's totally unafraid of it. Yeah, he's he's totally at ease with everything. Everybody else is sort of put off by it at first. And, and you're right. He's he's in his element now. And, and uh, he makes his introductions and he says, uh, I love this. He goes, where are we? And the Robinsons go, uh, well, we don't know. <laughs> so, oh, well, I guess you're just oh there again. <laughs> yeah, we're just as you're just as lost as I am. And uh, he said, "Well, I, I had no idea where we were, and Traveling Man didn't either." And of course, Traveling Man he later lets us know that's the name of his ship. But uh, right away, we get that uh, change in the atmosphere because the Western motif music comes streaming in behind it. That's more of Herman Stein's work, and it really adds to the atmosphere here. Yeah, it's almost a little too much. It's, it's so jarring compared to the classical music that we're normally used to. I mean, to go to that harmonica with the home on the range <laughs> motif and everything, it's almost like you know going from Bernard Herman to rap music or something. It's just so contrary. It's a and uh but you know for this guy that's one of the things that puts you at ease at him he's just so earthy and it only makes sense that his music is that way too it is it's setting a mood and it gives you that lonesome homesick mood or feeling right away so he uh invites the the boys to come and and take a look at his ship traveling man and they go in there and they they inspect a ship and they're impressed it looks I think John actually says it looks like a fine ship in its class. And, uh, of course, I wanted to ask you this question because you mentioned the the effect shot of the ship in space. What did you think of how it compared with the actual prop there, the uh, the ship in real life? Well, for one thing, it seemed a lot smaller. I mean, in the, the preview of the previous week, you thought it was like a, a real big spaceship and instead it's basically like the little nose cone of the apollo or something it's about the size of a telephone booth you know you couldn't hardly get anybody in there and then it also has these uh, attachments on the top 
that yeah. Yeah, you be- can it you can see that it, it sticks out these antennas and they're not on that shot and plus the uh, uh, exhaust pipes are completely reconfigured differently so it doesn't quite match but you know you it's not glaringly off-putting but it is uh, different and uh, you let's just say that the preview made it look more exciting the actual ship than what you actually caught but no, isn't a, that just the way yeah it's a little different but uh, of course we're only getting a couple seconds view of it in that effect shot but to me when they're walking around it it really reminded me like you said like a like a mercury or a a gemini capsule or something that except for it had some extra fins on it some antennas and whatnot so it's a pretty small little ship and it made you wonder is this just like is this just like his landing capsule and he goes back up to a larger ship but we really don't get any more information about that but what i do like about this whole scene as they're looking at a ship and talking to him is you're really starting to like this guy because his 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 texas dialogue his twang the 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 accent that he's doing and everything so you don't know any more about this little planet than i do do you zach zach indeed you know i got a grandpa back in big springs by that name come think of it you look a little bit like him of course, maybe he was a little more spry than you the last time I saw him. Appearances can be deceptive, you know. Yep, I'll allow you that. For instance, this little planet here. It looked as big as Texas from up above. When you get right down to it, I think you could put it all in the panhandle. <laughs> we haven't seen it all yet, Mr. Hapgood. Oh? Well, how about its son? You know its name? No, sir. <laughs> well, how about that? Then you're all just like me, ain't you? You lost his wood tick on a bald mountain. It's a terrible thing, being lost. Sure is, if you're inclined to misery. Um, He just has some expressions that are absolutely priceless. Like he said, well, you're just as lost as a wood tick on Bald Mountain, which I don't even understand what that means, but I'm like, oh, I'm kind of grinning as I'm hearing him say it. And he's grinning too, so he he makes you like him right away. Yeah, it's almost like... uh... President George Bush, where we say mucho gravitas. (laughs) Nuclear. (laughs) Nuclear war. We don't want to avoid nuclear war. And speaking of which, they ask him what mission he was on. He says, well, he's been, he launched like uh, June 18th of 1982, and his original mission was a, a Saturn landing. And of course, he didn't make it for some reason. He decided he just didn't want to stop off there. And I guess it's just as well because this, this show was written well before NASA had figured out that Saturn is just basically a big gas planet with a tiny little rock core. So it wouldn't have done him too good to try to land there. You do have to ask yourself, though, where did he stop over to get some oxygen? I mean, it's a long way out of the solar system to the next oxygen-bearing planet. <laughs> yeah, well, he, well he's, he's, a, he's got the wanderlust. He admits that. And uh, he also says something at one point about how curiosity killed the cat. So he's a character. He really is. And you can tell that right away Will has kind of taken, taken a shine to him. He's, he's very fascinated with him. And I love this part because uh, uh, the the rest of the crew is going to head back, but uh, Will's going to stay behind. And it's kind of interesting. He, you know, I think you were talking, you and I were talking about this before. Will's dad actually says, you know, John says, "Oh, you want to help Mister Hapgood secure his ship?" Yeah, you can lead him back to the Jupiter too. And it's sort of like, John, you you know, you don't know this guy, and 
you're going to leave your your son with this guy? I mean, for all you know, he could climb back on that capsule and blast off of them, and you'll never see him again. Uh, it, it seemed really way too trusting, but, you know, hey, uh, you have been in space a long time. He's the first human you've seen, so maybe uh, uh, dropping a few uh, force fields might be appropriate. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess again, this is like the— the mid '60s, where people were still leaving their cars unlocked in parking lots, and you know, not locking their doors at night, and everything like it was a much more high trust society than we have. Sure. Now. So they, yeah, think- and, you, and you can't say that it's out of character for John. I mean, they let him tromp around all the time with Doctor Smith, and you know, nobody ever thinks <laughs> twice about that. You know, now you can't even let your kids play outside in the in the playground without basically a camera or some you know armed cop with them. Well, 1997, apparently, in the Irwin Allen world, was a lot more trusting place. But uh, anyway, um, Will stays behind with Hapgood, and he's getting more stories from Hapgood, and he helps him decontaminate, <laughs> decontaminate his ship. And I love this, uh, this whole scene because, you know, Hapgood's wearing a whole flight suit and gloves and everything and he's spraying with his with his bug sprayer there and he just hands the the sprayer off to will and says oh go ahead he doesn't seem to mind at all and will says well it's good you don't have to really worry about this because the atmosphere here is pretty clean it's not polluted like earth and hapkin says oh i'm not worried about pollution i'm worried about alien spores Oh, yeah, we're going to see some of those alien spores. But but you're right. I mean, Hapgood's got this protection, but he doesn't pass any of that off to Will. I mean, it's like, again, you know, in the 1960s, as kids, you know, we used to go travel behind the bug mosquito man in our, our bicycles as he would spray melathion or DDT in the neighborhoods. You know, we just thought that was great fun. You know, and he didn't even pull over and say, kids, this is insane. He didn't seem to mind it either. No one seemed to realize this stuff was deadly. But, you know, the strange thing, even in its own little lost in space universe, is I don't remember any of the other spaceships giving a, a wit about decontamination the jupiter 2 never did it none of the no. other spaceships did it so and this is the only one so mm-hmm. and of course it turns out to be a a, a very real concern but uh yeah because because hapgood even tells will he says you know i had a, an encounter with spores before and these uh spores were just eating metal and look what they did to me and he shows his hand he's got a big scar on his hand wow will- I want one of those. Will's eyes are big and round. It's like, oh, can I see one of those spores? Well, just wait, kids. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see them sooner than you want. Yeah. 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 So anyway, uh, Will's Will's trying to do a good job of decontaminating, but at at a certain point, Hapgood decides, "Eh, I think we've done enough, and he starts to head off, and Will drops the decontamination sprayer and runs off, and oh, my gosh. We see as we go to break that he hasn't quite finished the job has he yeah no uh, a little bit of animation there as you see the spores glowing on the exhaust fins mm. so yeah just, just as a, and i think it was actually william who hapgood says he's gonna go but will says here uh, wait for me so you know it wasn't like hap said let's let's get on out of here i think hap thought he was gonna finish the job but he doesn't Nope, he doesn't. And I have to say, my wife was really impressed with that little effect before they went to break because she said, oh, that's that's really cool. I wonder what kind of flashlight they were shining on that fin there. <laughs> and I said, well, well I, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, uh, no. Uh, Irwin Allen probably spent some good money on that. If if Lisa had been on his staff, we would probably would have gotten the flashlight effect. It's a good <laughs> thing she wasn't around. 
to uh, point that out. He always loved to cut corners on effects like that. But it looked good being the, the animation that it was. Although there's, you know, a virus. Why would it go from zero to, oh, omelet size that quickly? But, you know, there's several of them. And, and it does give us a foreboding that something is brewing. And we're going to see... Something come up real soon. We just don't know what. Oh, yes. So, yeah, and the music even for, uh, foreshadows that as well as we go to break. So... We come back from Act 2, and we're at the Jupiter 2, and we're seeing a distressed and bothered-looking John Robinson. He's loitering around Maureen while she's working on dinner. And at first, maybe you think it's uh, her cooking that's got him all out of sorts because he tries a bite of whatever it is she's making and spits it out. He clearly has something on his mind. And uh, he tells her that he thinks that Hapgood's ship can be repaired and asks her if he, if she thinks it's fair that they have that they keep uh, Penny and Will lost in space with them because there's a chance they could go back with Hapgood if they get the ship fixed. Yeah, it's a little late for that now, isn't it, honey? I mean, why didn't you have these concerns before we went on this journey? <laughs> no, she doesn't say that. But uh, uh, suddenly, you know, we're we're faced with this uh, very tough choice that any parent would probably consider if they were in similar circumstances. Well, sure. Do you want to send your kids back? Uh, to Earth now. What's not said in here, of course, is that one little dangling participle that we sort of forget, and that is that Earth is dying, and that's why they went on this journey in the first place. So, you know, sending him back to Earth doesn't really sound like that good of an alternative. But from the sentimental standpoint of where we are now, we're all sitting there thinking, yeah, getting back to civilization where they could socialize and see other people. Because remember, you know, it wasn't supposed to be that the Robinsons were going to be alone on Alpha Centauri. They were going to be one of, uh, what was it, 10,000 families that were moving there. So there was going to be a community where there's definitely no community mm. where they are now. So right. uh, that's And that's great for Judy and, Do- and, and Wes. I mean, they can get happily married and live their life. Uh, but that's not so great for Penny and Will. I mean, their options are pretty dry. Well, yeah, and they're not on the planet they were supposed to be, so there's no other families coming there. So they And they have no way of knowing if they're eventually going to get to Alpha Centauri. But it does lead to a pretty emotional exchange between John and Maureen. And, of course, the that's dramatic, and that's you know heart-wrenching, as you would expect. But, of course, the funny part of this scene is you cut over and you see Dr. Smith is peering through the porthole trying to eavesdrop on the conversation. He's even got one of his stethoscopes pushed up to the glass, and he doesn't look too pleased by what he's hearing, does he? No, he's already got designs on the passenger he thinks should go back to Earth, and it's definitely not Will or Penny. (laughs) So he's going to drop the dime on Penny, not to mention Will, but we know that's going to happen. Sooner or later, we just don't know how he's going to do it. Well, John gets Maureen to admit that she wishes that perhaps they had made the bad a bad decision. They, uh, you know, she even says something like, "You know, I do regret it. I wish we had left the kids back home, given what has happened at this point." And she says, "If there's a chance that Hapgood can get the kids back to Earth, they should take it." Mm. So they end that conversation, and uh, you know it's it's a misty-eyed type of a scene. But of course, Smith comes out of the Jupiter two and walks over, and we pan across to the garden. We see that uh, Penny, dear sweet little Penny, is over in the garden weeding the plants. 
Of course you are. <laughs> no answer necessary. I know what you think because what I think is what you shall think. No, I don't think she even answers, but you know he answers for her in he, his own mind. He certainly does because he's already he's already starting to formulate his own plan, uh, uh, an escape plan, if you will. So when we come back from break, uh, next we see Hapgood paying a visit to the castaways' campsite. He asks if he can get a tour of their ship, and of course they agree and they're proud to show it off to him and here's a scene where i thought this director was really doing a great job of setting up the shots probably as you said earlier the reason these good directors don't stay around is it takes time to do this kind of setup but i love this scene because as soon as the rest of the the family and don start to walk into the jupiter 2 the camera sort of lingers on smith and he's facing away from the jupiter 2 he's facing the camera they're all moving in beside inside the ship and it's just focusing in on smith he doesn't say a word it's just the looks on his face as his eyes cut back over his shoulder to the rest of the group going in and you could just see the gears turning in his mind <laughs> and the ominous music welling up behind him so we know mm, he's got something cooking here yes the uh what they used to have a show called the galloping gourmet but uh that's kind of how smith is remember he loves to cook and you yes. never know what he's what little ingredients he's going to use or what the concoction's going to be at the end of the show but you know it's going to be like dessert best served cold <laughs> <laughs> yes, crepe Suzette or little green onions, whatever it is, it will be. <laughs> Don't served. forget the little green onions, definitely not. <laughs> so they walk into the ship, and Jimmy is thoroughly impressed with all of their equipment, especially their astrogator. It's a, he says it's a dandy piece of hardware you got there, and I sure wish I had that on my ship. And uh, but why don't you take it? Yeah, what? John immediately is offering it up to him. And uh, it's like, oh, we don't need it. I'm like, you don't need it? You're lost in space. You don't need a navigation piece of equipment. But uh, he's ready to give it over to him. And, of course, that's probably, as you say, because he's already made this decision that uh, he wants he wants to do whatever he can to make sure Jimmy can get home if it'll make sure that Will and Penny can get home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's looking out more for his kids. Of course, Hapgood doesn't know this yet, so Hapgood right. makes a mistake just thinking, my, you folks are mighty friendly around here. <laughs> Everybody's got an agenda, it turns out. and it's uh, Oh, but darn it, it's a little too big. Oh, yes, he says the quickness of the mind deceives the eye. It's just, it's just too large to fit inside his little mercury capsule, which, of course, you would think everybody would, that would be obvious to everybody, but... Uh, you know, I'm starting to already get the idea that Hapgood's not all that keen about going home to Earth. But, of course, Smith walks in quietly and is... Oh, you give up too easily, gentlemen. I couldn't help but overhear what with my stethoscope pressed firmly against the door. <laughs> you need something. How about the robot? He's got something quite small that would work perfectly well. Ah. Uh. <laughs> 
Yes, and I love that scene because he says, <laughs> he says he's calling the robot into the Jupiter too. He just goes, come, and the j- robot comes sauntering in, and he's like, oh, this is shades of the evil robot, but he's just coming in to be the uh, prize that uh, Smith is offering up to Hapgood with his own agenda, right? Spectroscope, navigational guidance system, space sextant, the works. Well, bless your little old iron sides. What are you getting from this, Smith? Only the satisfaction of knowing that I've made it possible for Mr. Hapgood to be reunited with his loved ones. How much time do we have? Well, if his liftoff's within uh, 48 hours, our navigational guidance system could give him a lock on the crew of 60. Well, sure, boys. I could find my way home blindfolded from that friendly little beacon. Plenty of time. Now, we'll do the operation below. All instruments to be sterile, of course. And we'll follow the routine surgical procedure. It's quite simple, really. Not too different from a kidney transplant. Excuse me. I must scrub up. I think you're underestimated, Zach. He's a lot more spry than my grandpa ever was. What do you get out of this, Smith? <laughs> oh, just doing a good duty here, trying to help the kids, don't you know? Well, it doesn't say that. What exactly does he say? Oh, he says, only the knowledge that he's helping Jimmy get back home to his loved ones. Ah, St. Zachary the <laughs> First. Uh, and this is another example, in, in my opinion, of Harris doing a great job of making Smith appear appear to be acting and uh mm-hmm. you know smith is is clearly delighted that he's going to get the credit for saving the day like we, we're familiar with smith as this great actor and making it look you know easy but in his role as the saboteur he really has you know he, he's a novice at acting so it only makes sense that when he's acting like he's acting that it doesn't look that sincere but we know people like this you know they're the people they're plastic people the mm. ones who have the plastic smiles and are always a little too sincere and, <laughs> oh isn't that special yeah. you know and it's like Ugh. and yeah. if you recall when smith goes and offers to help judy and penny in the previous episode he of course makes off with an excuse why he has to go back and uh, has to test the dirt for you know analysis but and he even says, well, at least he's a good cook. And Judy just, yeah, I bet he is. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. just know. They just yeah. know. I mean, they haven't eaten any of his food yet, but they just know it's all going to be smoke and mirrors. Yeah. He's like a, a 50-year-old Eddie Haskell or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Gee, I'm sorry I knocked over that chessboard. I was just about to put you in checkmate. <laughs> So next we get a nice little scene with Dr. Smith. He's all suited up in hospital scrubs, ready to perform this delicate, very delicate surgery on the robot to remove that special piece of equipment. And we're down in the lower deck, and I love this because he's doing a great job of playing Marcus Welby, MD, with Will as his surgical assistant. But did you notice that one of the first tools he calls for, you know, it's like, it's not scalpel, it's like micro wrench. And Will hands him this wrench, and it's like... (laughs) It looks like a pipe wrench or something. (laughs) I'd love to see the macro wrench if that's the micro one. Cheesy wheezy. 
And then he asked for a ratchet driver. And yeah. He doesn't ask for a solar wrench, which I was disappointed about that because I wanted to see a close-up of the solar wrench. Yeah. Yes, we need but, one of those. Yes, yes. So, so Don needs solar-powered wrenches, but Smith can turn it manually. That seems a little out of character, but... Yeah. You know, everything's. I'm, he didn't have an atomic spanner. At least that's a. Yeah. Maybe that's going to be a future episode. So no matter we what, have science indeed. Indeed, no matter how obvious and how ordinary the tool looks, if you give it a a very futuristic name, it's it's got to be something from the future, I guess. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the robots giving a sort of a running commentary while it, while all this work is being done on him, and and at one point Smith sort of turns to. To the group, it says, "Poor old thing. He doesn't like this one little bit." <laughs> oh, my favorite part is when he like produces this tiny little piece, and he goes, "Oh, I didn't know that was in there." <laughs> you know, that's the sort of thing the surgeon would say if I woke up under anesthesia. You know, doesn't oh inspire God. confidence, does it? <laughs> yeah. That's my appendix, you idiot. You know? <laughs> he pulls out a strand of film and, and, and cuts it off. And Jimmy even asks, are you sure this is painless? Completely. <laughs> <laughs> painless for me. That's all that matters. <laughs> and then at the end, he finally finds the piece of equipment he's looking for. And, of course, he declares to everyone. And you have to wonder if he wasn't drawing this out all for effect. He says, ah, a surgical masterpiece. Everything go now, eh, Jimmy, my boy? <laughs> <laughs> Time to celebrate. Oh, so he patches him up, and it's it's on to the next. Yes, it's on to the celebratory dinner outside, where it's very interesting. Judy's flirting with Jimmy and, of course, uh, offering him some of that delicious space pie. And Don isn't too happy. I don't know if he didn't get offered any, but he doesn't look any happy about that at all. Yeah, he thought this thing was a done deal. He's the only available bachelor, and she's the only cute blonde. Uh, and now suddenly there's a new a new sheriff in town. So uh, he's probably a little worried. Yeah, he's the sooner worried. this Hapgood leaves, the better. Exactly. We cut downstairs, and John and Maureen, and Maureen are giving the kids the news that uh, it's, they've decided that it's best for them to go back to Earth. And they're not too thrilled at the prospect, but... John's pretty firm with him and said, that's it, you're going back. And the parents are trying to act happy about it, but we're not really sure based on the way they look as the scene ends there. Yeah, well, it would be rather tough uh, seeing your kids off if you know you're never going to see them again for the rest of your life. I mean, I can relate. That would be a a real bummer. But at the same time, I mean, there's plenty of parents that would make that sacrifice for their kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, it it makes sense, but... uh, Anyway, back outside, Hapgood thanks the Robinsons for their hospitality. Uh, and again, everything Jimmy says is designed to make you feel empathy for him. I mean, his, his manner of speaking and everything. And of course, again, we get the sentimental uh, cowboy music welling up. In the ba- <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I'm a sucker for that stuff. I, I do have to admit that. And, he, you know, it's like it lines like, if a man could live forever, he's looking up at the stars. If a man could live forever, he sure would have it made, wouldn't he? So it's, uh, it's great dialogue. Eventually, John asks Jimmy if he'll take the kids with him, and he he not only refuses, he, he's actually upset at the whole idea. I mean, he, he, he virtually dresses John down at the very suggestion. He's offended. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you're seeing the cutaways to Smith silently smiling there. And <laughs> Beautiful. This is working even better than I anticipated. 
He's and loving it. He's loving it. And and uh, John says something like, uh, well, I just thought it was best for the kids. And, and Hapgood said, you know, he's making a good point. He says, well, you should have thought about this before you headed out into space because, uh, you know, you're not out on a highway out of gas. You're way out yonder. Yeah, there is no highways out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And John accepts it. He 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 does a manly job of just accepting it. And he, he's mad. You could tell he's mad. But he's instead mad. of instead of you know throwing it back at him, he says, "Well, I'll go get some star charts that you could use." You know, yeah. it's like, okay, well, that's one way to end the conversation. But it is. I mean, he's he's not going to pr- press it further. But Maureen is left standing there, and you, we cut over to to Don, who's been observing this as well. And, you know, he wasn't happy with Jimmy flirting with Judy, but now Jimmy's really caught, crossed a line here when he's been disrespectful to the boss. And he jumps up and demands that Jimmy apologize. And uh, you can sense that a fight is about to break out. Yeah, and that certainly Smith senses that because Smith quietly saunders <laughs> over to a Maureen and is going to play interference just in case she plans on breaking it up. Yes, all with a smile, because he's, he's actually enjoying this thoroughly. But uh, Don throws a punch, and a fight breaks out. And it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's really a, a classic scene from any Western or cowboy movie you've ever seen. I mean, we get the cowboy music behind it uh, at double time now. And even though Don threw the first punch and knocked Jimmy on his feet, Jimmy didn't act mad at all. He looks up and he's smiling. He's like, is that the best you got? And he's into it now. Oh, yeah. He, he loves to fight. You get that feeling, kind of that insane, you know, yeehaw. In fact, I think he says yeehaw, and he jumps back into it. And uh, Maureen yeah. is uh, blocked by Smith, who's enjoying it. Smith, of course, is the guy that we all know from high school who loved to see the fights break out and would actually instigate them with little things like, ooh, are you going to let him say that about you? You know? <laughs> yeah, so he he's as into it as Jimmy is for for different reasons, and he's yeah. I'm sitting... surprised he's not selling peanuts or something, you know, <laughs> Cracker Jacks, peanuts. Get him right here, or taking bets. Yeah, exactly. He reminded me of the Emperor watching Luke and Vader fight in Star Wars or something like that. He's just enjoying. <laughs> Feel the hate. Feel the hate. <laughs> so the tangling is going on, and, and, and they're both getting their licks in, but uh, it all ends with a bang when uh, Judy sneaks up behind Hapgood with a frying pan and delivers the coup de grace, so to speak. Yeah. He says something like, you know, I apologize, but I still ain't taking those kids. Plonk. Dong. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem a little odd that, you know, uh, Don is so willing to fight over this little thing when all these times that Smith was, you know, putting the the family in literal danger of their lives, he doesn't hit Smith for that. You know, if anybody deserved it, it would have been Smith. So, I mean, what would possibly explain putting up with some of the incredible, uh, just terrible things that Smith does? And he keeps doing it. I mean, he's a repeat offender, you know, and, uh, Maybe the the cowboy music got on uh, Don's nerves after a while, but it didn't seem like uh, uh, Hapgood had really crossed a line anywhere near as much as Smith had. So well, I, I, th- 
I think what the the I think what the straw that broke the camel's back for Don was that he saw a competition for Judy's affections. I think. Ah, you know, okay. Well, that would explain it. That's one thing that Smith never <laughs> offered it. Yeah. A threat to, to no. his masculinity in that <laughs> regard. That's for sure. Clearly not, sir, dear lady. Mm-hmm. No, he he. I think that that's the way I read that. And and again, I think that the fact that he got mad over the insult or or the you know offer you you should offer an apology to John was just. Almost window even, dressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was window dressing exactly because he he was upset that Judy was clearly you know enjoying the the attention of Hapgood, so he took his chance. But yeah, Smith wasn't a, a threat there. So anyway, that's just my interpretation of it. But I, again, it is kind of interesting because Smith has in the past basically put the entire family's lives in jeopardy, and it hasn't. He's been threatened by Don, but he's never actually come to fisticuffs up until now. So, yeah, you keep wondering what, when is it going to happen, but you know it never <laughs> seems to happen. <laughs> I surrender, sir. Yes. Take my spoon. Threaten violence, sir. Uh, anyway, the act ends, and we cut back to the ship, and we see uh, those spores have hatched into terrible-looking giant spores. They look like giant monster plants. And I love, as we go in there, you get the sound effect of the croaking uh, swamp frogs. You know, That's a great mm-hmm. effect. I always love that. Yeah, it is kind of uh, eerie and, and creepy, and it's the from the science fiction standpoint, this is the highlight of the episode. I mean, it's the, really the only special effects of significance. And it's kind of cool because, you know, they now look like giant crab monsters reaching out. Mm, and, uh, with tentacles. Huge, yeah. So uh, that, that part's pretty cool. And you're sitting there, well, is somebody going to get hurt here? The yeah. music is certainly foreboding as if somebody could. It's it's definitely otherworldly there. So we go to break. That ends Act 2. Before we talk about Act 3, I would like to take just a moment for a word from our sponsor. Why the long face, guy? I'm trying to realign these batteries on the chariot, but I can't seem to find the right tool. What kind of tool you looking for? The kind we don't have. A solar wrench. And I don't have time to wait for it to arrive in the mail from Amazon, and I obviously can't drive this heap to the hardware store. Well, that's no problem. You can get one of those right now. What? Where? How? By using the Celestial Department Store machine right around that rock formation. That's right, folks. With Zumdish's Celestial Department Store, everything you need is just a push button away. From deuteronium drill bits to cosmic dusters, from androids to astrogators, all can be purchased within seconds by simply heading to your nearest Celestial Department Store delivery kiosk. Hey! That's just the tool I needed. Now why didn't I think of that? Conveniently located from Saturn to Preplanus, from Epsilon Indy to Alpha Centauri, there's a Zumdish Celestial Department Store kiosk near you. And remember, we stand behind our merchandise 100%, sir. Zumdish Celestial Department Store. Shop with us today. Act three, we come back from break, and Dr. Smith is attempting to sweet-talk Hapgood and is taking him to Earth instead of those terrible brats. And he couldn't be more transparent. He's, he's even attempting to use Hapgood's cowboy lingo as he suggests that... Ah, uh... uh, good morning, good morning. Howdy. I must say you showed good sound horse sense yesterday, Jimmy, my boy. I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed listening to you. 
Oh? Listen to what? Why, uh, your answer to that ridiculous suggestion they made to you. Hmm. Well, impractical is what it was. Very. Imagine being cooped up in that splendid little vehicle of yours with a pair of extremely undisciplined and precocious brats. Now, you don't have to go call them names, Zach. They're just normal kids, that's all. They just don't belong with me and Traveling Man. Precisely the point. They don't belong in Traveling Man any more than I belong here on this benighted planet. Well, now, that is a chance you took when you volunteered. I volunteered? Oh, my dear Jimmy, I was literally shanghaied. There I was, in my capacity as president of the Zachary Smith Engineering Corporation, giving my final blessing to the Jupiter II, which owes so much to my own engineering skill. When, poof, I was whisked into space. And here I am. I thought you were a medical man. I have degrees in both medicine and science. So very useful on a long flight. So you see, Jimmy, if there is anyone who is rightfully eligible to go back to Earth with you, it can only be myself. And incidentally, about that little launch pad you mentioned, I could engineer that for you right off the top of my head. And of course, there'd be no charge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the beauty about Smith. I mean, every time you catch him in a lie, you just give him another opportunity to spend an even greater <laughs> whopper. You know, it reminds me of this rather arcane story from uh, the Canterbury Tales where a wife is cheating on her husband and the gods get so infuriated about it, the Greek gods, that one of them casts this power bolt down on the husband so that the husband is blind. So the god makes the man be able to see. So he could see what a terrible person his wife is. And his wife just turns around and says, Darling, I did this for you because I knew the only way to get your eyesight back was to do this in front of you. I, I'm doing this for you. And he <laughs> buys it. You know, this is the caliber of the lying that Smith can do. He can actually be doing the worst possible thing. And yet he somehow manages to turn it around and make it sound like he's doing you the favor. <laughs> so here's Smith. He sabotaged the ship. He tried to kill everybody. And he's turned it around and like he was actually the victim. Mm, yes. Incredible. Always the victim, yes. and uh, but of course Jimmy's not buying his 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 act at all, and he says, "Well, you know, sorry about that, Smith, but traveling man don't carry no passengers, and you being such a good engineer, I guess you better engineer your way out of here." <laughs> yeah, another way other than me, that's for sure. Mm. And then we get a little scene where Hapgood, uh, we finally see what he's been doing with that laser gun. And he's actually been leaving his uh, his uh, signature on a rock there, and it says something like, Hapgood was here. And uh, he's <laughs> Smith's like, what is that for? And he says, I always leave my mark. This is the 91st time. So he really has been bouncing around the galaxy. Well, he certainly got a lot more class than me. You know, I would have just peed in the sand or something, but it probably wouldn't have lasted as long. <laughs> Plus, it would have had to been cursive, and he was able to use print. His aim is much better. Yeah, he does have good penmanship with that laser. That's now, that's for did sure. Did you tell me that this was actually an Easter egg and the new Lost in Space? Yes, this is a little. There's a little throwback from this uh, in the new Netflix Lost in Space. So, I'm oh, gonna... that's pretty cool. I, I'll have to check that out. I, I'm just now starting that series. So, yeah. Well, I'm not going to give it totally away. You'll, you'll. There's a lot of Easter eggs in that, so keep your eyes peeled. But oh, great! Yeah, okay. 
Anyway, we come back to the Jupiter where John and Don are working on a large piece of equipment. It looks very, very scientific. Uh, I'm sure it's got a nice uh, scientific name like Astro or Nuclear or something like that. But anyway, it's a, apparently a heavy piece of equipment because there's a yeah. hoist and everything. It's a, it's a nuclear jet engine. Because that's what... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no atomic jet engine. Yeah. Well, they're kind of they're kind of just busy doing their work, and and Hapgood uh, walks up upon him, and he's acting a little sheepish at first, but uh, he says, "You guys still mad at me? Oh no, we're not mad at you. No, no, we're not mad. I'm not mad at you. You mad at him, Don? No, no. no I just kind of wish I hit you harder. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a good fight, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was. Yeah, I'll do that di- again sometime. <laughs> All their differences are settled, and uh, so. Hapgood says, well, I better get back to the ship. And at the last minute, as he's walking away and has his back turned, the hoist breaks loose, and that piece of equipment comes barreling towards Hapgood. And he's uh, caught underneath it, and it uh, injures his back and everything. And uh, so, oh, my gosh, he's got to go inside and, and get go to bed rest. And I love the little line that Judy and, and Maureen are standing there. He goes, oh, mother, I wish I hadn't hit him before. Well, don't worry about that now, dear. Let's just get him into bed. <laughs> Yeah, you got to wonder what's going through Hap's mind, though. I mean, you know, all the people that have the thing fall on it just happens to fall on him when he comes back and checks on him. <laughs> must look a little suspicious. Yeah. But at least there's no personal injury lawyers around, so yeah. everything's going to be swept under the carpet fast enough. Yeah. He doesn't seem that upset about it, and they seem happy to try to help him out. Well, they do, and they put him in. They put him in the bed downstairs in the in the lower deck, and June even comes in to give him some of that delicious space chowder to help heal him up. And he apologizes for being a bother, and he almost seems to be having some second thoughts about refusing to take the kids with him. But Marine backs him up and says, "You know, it's your ship. You're the commander of your ship. You get to decide what you want to do." But uh, we leave it at that. And the next morning. The Hapgood is feeling better, so he's heading back to his ship to make sure everything's buttoned up. And Will and Penny say, oh, can we go? And, of course, uh, yeah, come on, I'll tell you some stories. They start walking back. When they, when they get to the ship, of course, we, before we even see anything, we start to hear those creepy croak, croaking frog sounds. And we know, oh, my gosh. And sure enough, everything's overgrown with the giant spores. Yeah, if they were bad before, now they're really bad. They look more <laughs> like those creatures in the... What was it, uh, Return of the Jedi or Empire Strikes Back, where Luke's about to be thrown into that desert monstrosity that supposedly will digest him for a a thousand years? Mm. They've got one of those type creatures, then a giant Venus flytrap, and the rest look like the kind of like the creatures that came out of the pea pod that attacked Dr. Smith earlier. Mm. So it's 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 pretty graphic and it's uh, pretty spooky. But then. Hapgood makes the classic mistake that Dr. Robinson makes all the time when he says, don't do this. If you want, It's reverse psychology. Never tell a kid not to do something that the kid wants to do. He says, stay here, which, of course, means as soon as I walk away, follow me. And that's what they do. They go straight into the, the landmines of all these crab monsters, Venus flytraps, and plant creatures. And, uh, and Penny falls in the middle of one of them. It shoots up around her and pulls her down into the ground. It's not just sitting there on the surface. It's got that gullet going down below the, the ground level. So it's pretty spooky. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, 
Well, she backs into it, which you knew something was bad there. She's 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 more or less backpedaling, and, and the and the tentacles are, are reaching out towards her. I thought that was a cool scene. So she's sort of backing away from these tentacles that are closing in on her, and she falls into the trap, as you said. And I was thinking to myself, "Feed me, Seymour," because it looked <laughs> it looked it yeah. reminded me of Little Shop of Horrors, but 20 years beforehand. And of course. Uh, that scene did not please the CBS censors at all because we go to break with Penny all but eaten alive. And you don't know if she's going to survive or not. Now, of course, she's going to survive. But it, it's a pretty frightening way to go to commercial break. And, you know, we're definitely on the edge of our seats here. Yeah, make sure you don't go to the bathroom during our commercials because you might miss what happens to Penny when you get back. <laughs> <laughs> they were all holding it in for this this commercial break, that's for sure. They really were. Well... So we come back from break, and Hapgood, he, he saves her. He has to dig in there. With Will's help, of course, he tells Will to go get the uh, the decontamination sprayer. And Penny Penny's saved, and she comes out, and she's a little bit shaken up. And, uh, you know, Hapgood even says, go ahead and cry. It'll be good for you. And then he tells Will real quick, uh, you know, don't you laugh at her for crying now, boy. So, you know, he's, he's a good guy and everything. But at that moment, the Robinsons come walking in, and there they are to see what's happened. Yeah, I mean, he Hap's at this point basically hugging the child, and but uh, soon enough, it's it's apparent that you know something terrible has happened, and uh, he rescued her, and he's not to blame. So they're appreciative as opposed to like, "What the hell are you doing to my child?" <laughs> exactly, and uh, immediately he this this incident has scared him enough that he decides, you know what, maybe it's not, maybe maybe these kids don't need to stay here on this planet. There's too many dangers. So he tells. John, he says, you better get those kids packed up because we're leaving. We're leaving soon, and they're they're all happy at the prospect that the kids are going to be taken off of this hostile world. And Don even pipes up and says, you know, it's a real good thing you're doing there, Jimmy. But of course, Smith <laughs> Smith is not part of the happy group here. He looks absolutely furious, and he talks. He makes one more attempt with uh, Hapgood. Hey, you can't take these kids. You have to take me. Hapgood's not buying it. No, he uh, he's figured out Smith faster than most people have. He definitely has. So we cut back to the Jupiter 2, and, and this whole thing, now you really see Smith going into full, full Smith mode here because he's he's got uh, Will and Penny down in the lower deck, and he's just talking to them, and he's starting to spin his little web of intrigue, and he's saying... Plan B. Yes. Well, if... Uh, if I can't talk Jimmy into taking me, maybe I can talk the kids into not going, and then uh, Jimmy will be forced to take me. So he starts talking to the kids. Of course, I've explained to your parents that I cannot be held entirely responsible for the transplant of that uh, navigation equipment. Is something wrong with it? Oh, no. It's working perfectly now. But uh, for how long? Who can tell? That's a chance we'll have to take, I guess. Yes, I'm afraid you will. Come in, dear. Although I must say, I cannot understand your parents' attitude. In fact, I'm a little shocked by it. What do you mean? Yes, what do you mean, Dr. Smith? Perhaps I shouldn't have mentioned it. But children don't have to know how their parents feel about an important decision. And you can't ask them. Why not? Think how badly they'd feel if you forced them to lie to you. Remember one thing. 
before they say goodbye to you. Perhaps for the last time, your parents may weaken. The heartbreak may be too much for them. But you, you must be strong. Pretend your very hardest that you don't see the tears in their eyes when they try to convince themselves that this parting is best for you. You mean they don't want us to leave? I've said too much already. You needn't be afraid to tell us. It won't change anything. I should hope not. But after all, they are your parents. I wouldn't blame the average child for refusing to go if he learned how happy his parents would be if he stayed. In fact, I think the average child would probably do something quite ridiculous. Run away and hide. Or something equally absurd. Just so he wouldn't have to go. But you and Penny are not average children, are you? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, average children would probably run away, but you're not average children, are you? I'm sure you'll obey dutifully. Mm. After all... It's only up to your parents to have to suffer in silence. Mm, yes. And they're, of course, looking at each other like, gee, you know. I mean, yeah. I've said too much already, but remember, the average child might be tempted to do something completely foolish like run away and hide. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just underline that last part in case you didn't get it. Run away and hide. Okay. okay. <laughs> I- I'm telling you not to do that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So we cut to a scene with Smith and the robot outside, and he's lurking there waiting for his plan to take effect. And it does, because next we see John and Maureen running around. Oh, I can't, we can't find the kids, and maybe he's at Hapgood ship. Nope, Don's checked. And uh, Smith is just lurking about loving the way his plan is unfolding. And, of course, the music tells us that there's a sense of urgency here because Hapgood has to take off within a certain amount of time, and the music is basically giving us that countdown effect with the drums beating and the... And the tempo's getting a little faster and a little faster. And, uh, you know, everybody's looking for Will and Penny, but they they just can't seem to find them. Meanwhile, Hapgood's having, he's reconsidering whether he really wants to do this. He's saying things like, well, I, you know, I made a deal. You know, I need to turn those kids over to Alpha Control as soon as I get back. But that, that galaxy's like calling, you know. Yeah, he's having a little, he's having a little self, uh, self-awareness session there in his capsule as he's sitting there. And, and he, you know, you get the idea that, yeah, if they show up in time, he's going to actually take them. But boy, his heart's really not in it. He, he wants to go out there and see more of the universe. But of course, time does run out. John and Maureen do find Will and Penny at the cave, but it's not in time because the next scene we see a cutaway of Jimmy's ship blasting off into space with none other than Dr. Smith left behind in the sand, looking up at the camera plaintively crying out, Will, Jimmy, you have to take me with you. You can't leave me. (laughs) I love that shot. (laughs) Great. Shane, Shane, come back. <laughs> well, that was a nice crane shot, you know. So, again, Irwin had to put out some money for that. They probably didn't like that, and that's why he went into day number eight. You know, those those shots take some time to pull focus and do all the fancy stuff. Um, who knows what it cost him, but it, it was an effective shot and gave it a little uh, air class there at the last second. It sure did. So, back at the Jupiter 2, 
All systems are good. Jimmy calls back, and it's it's another one of these last heartwarming scenes with Jimmy explaining that he's he's got a lot more that, of living that he wants to do, and a lot more of the galaxy that he wants to see. And uh, you know, he says something like, "I hadn't even hardly scratched the surface of what's out there yet." But he does wish them all well, and he sees a Nova, and he yells out, "Yeehaw! Look at her go, boy!" Yeah, and even Maureen gets caught up in the festivities, and she basically says, "Yeehaw!" as well. You know, mm. all's well that ends well. Uh, you know, they've got a lot more living to do as well. But uh, Smith is the only one that doesn't seem to be through too thrilled with the whole thing. He's like, "Oh, we." <laughs> Oh, but I'll get him next time. You wait and see. Yes. Yeah, uh, he was not pleased, but uh you know, you know what I wasn't so sure that, that he waited until the exact time that he agreed. Yeah, you know, I got the impression that maybe he left just a little bit early, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what you know, because he was having this tug of war with himself. And uh, but it, regardless, uh I think it's it's apparent that the parents are kind of glad that the kids stayed because they would have missed him too much. That's kind of how I was reading it. Exactly. As you say, all's well that ends well in this story. So, so now we get the teaser for next week's episode. And I think we can skip a detailed description other than to say that this episode will heavily feature Penny Robinson. And we're shown John, Don, and Will are preparing to do some blasting in a drill site when unexpectedly Penny Robinson wanders in. And at the last minute, before they can disconnect the blasting wires, John has to run out (laughs) into the area and charge towards her and push her out of the way at the last minute. And the action freezes in a cool freeze frame with John Robinson pushing Penny out of the way with the explosion in the background. It's a very, very cool freeze frame. Now, that really looked like Penny. So, I mean, you know it wasn't John. That that had to be a stunt double, but I imagine they also had a double for Penny, too. Who's going to want to... Okay, we got to get a a stunt double for Zorro here, but the 12-year-old could just be the (laughs) 12-year-old. No, maybe it was just a, a mannequin or something. But uh, but it was convincing in the, in the shot. Uh, yeah, yep, it was, it was. But ooh, oh, that uh, that was uh, that was very cool. And uh, unfortunately, kids, sorry, we're gonna have to wait until next week because we get the freeze frame that tells us to stay tuned until next week as we go to end credits for Welcome Stranger. So, Kurt, I'm gonna say I did like this episode. Um, I have to be honest and say that I imagine as a kid, a lot of the sentimental parts wouldn't really have appealed to me. But watching it now as an adult, I did find that I enjoyed it. Not nearly as much as I enjoyed the first five episodes. And I think we're, we're shifting gears here a little bit. I still do like it. I think it's a good episode. The pacing is a little slower. There were some exciting parts to it. But overall, I'd definitely say it's a step down from where we were just a couple episodes ago. So... What do you say? Well, in the words of a mutual German friend, the honeymoon is over. Over! <laughs> I mean, this is, it, it was a fun episode, and I did enjoy it, but it doesn't compare to those first five episodes. It is a lot more formulaic. There's not, a, it, a lot more spin on dialogue instead of actual action. There isn't a whole lot of action in this episode, really. But it it is fun from the character standpoint. You know, you like the character. You you find this, like I said, the cowboy bit is a little bit over the top, but complete with the cowboy hat and everything. But 
he is a fascinating guy that you know you would enjoy meeting at a bar and you probably wouldn't want to spend more than an hour with him but for one hour he was very enjoyable and and it did have that moment of tension about them maybe splitting up their family for the sake of the kids so it did have that going for it too well, it sounds like we both uh, agree that this is a little bit of a step down from the first five episodes, but it also sounds like maybe I enjoyed the episode just a little bit more than you do, which is okay. I guess if I were to quantify it a little bit more the character of Hapgood, I you know, I really did like him, and he, he certainly fulfilled the whole cowboy archetype from you know literature. I mean, he's literally got that whole don't fence me in attitude and and uh, to top it all off, he actually leaves his brand like any good cowboy on a rock before he uh, <laughs> before he leaves the planet. So, yeah, it, it was it was a step down, but it was good. So, well, before we go, I mentioned last time that originally Welcome Stranger was not meant to be the sixth episode of Lost in Space. That in fact there was a sixth story outline penned by Shimon Winselberg titled. Refuged of the Damned, that was supposed to complete the story arc from the launch of the Jupiter 2, ending with the family lost in space. Well, lost on a planet in space, <laughs> anyway. Well, first off, that's a great title, Refuge of the Damned. I mean, that's a that sounds like an uh, episode I'd really like to see. Yeah, that title, well, that would not have survived the CBS censors, but uh, yeah. Anyway, Mark Cushman has a very short chapter in his Lost in Space book, uh, and when I say short, I mean very short, it's only two pages long, that covers Refuge of the Damned. In that chapter, he states that Episode 5, The Hungry Sea, was supposed to end with a teaser showing the Robinsons giving thanks in the jungle area by the chariot, and then the camera would pull back and reveal that a pair of large-brained aliens were spying on them from a hidden vantage point. And that one little scene was the only footage from the original pilot that was going to be salvaged for this sixth episode. Now, after reading the story that followed, I'm not surprised that they decided not to develop it into a script because it's kind of a complicated tale that involves not only those big-brained aliens, but a band of shipwrecked international criminals from Earth. And both these groups are menacing the Robinsons in that jungle setting. You know, having the international criminals, that could be pretty scary, too. But, you know, if it were done in the color version of Lost in Space, you know, those guys would probably be wearing pinstripe suits who would have Tommy guns and something, yeah. and talking that way, you know? <laughs> See? You know, they would have, they would have overplayed right. it. Yes. But if they did it yeah. uh, in this wow. first season, uh, that could be rather chilling. In the end, after several different uh, menacing episodes, the leader of one of the groups captures Judy, who is eventually rescued at the end by Don, leaving both groups of Robinson's antagonists to scatter, never to be seen again. So Cushman surmises, and I think I agree with him, that the story was a little confusing. There was no role for Dr. Smith or the robot. And there, it would probably have been too expensive to film as envisioned by Wenzelberg. So instead, we got Welcome Stranger. Uh. 
Before we go, Kurt, I want to thank our listeners out there who have left us comments and feedback on our Libsyn site, Facebook, Stitcher, and we've had several ratings and reviews on iTunes. Some people have left some very helpful and honestly quite positive feedback for our new podcast here. And all that is great because, it number one, it lets us know if we're hitting the mark with this show, and it also helps make more people aware of the show. So thanks very much to everyone for doing that. With that, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the seventh episode of Lost in Space titled My Friend, Mr. Nobody. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. See you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same channel.